2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, this series, as I said, the first three weeks of our small series, we have seen the huge impact of uh, even simple decisions. And today we're going to look at another one that affects every single one of us. And again, we're in a very familiar passage. I don't want that to, to dull you. Um, I've had a lot of fun studying this week because when you know a passage pretty well, you've got to dig a little deeper, right? You've got to find that truth and that application that you haven't necessarily found before. So this is the passage, 2 Samuel 11, where David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And not only does this have significant long-term uh, ramifications for David and for the kingdom, but David comes across as very personally careless here and very kind of... Uh, entitled and, and even kind of openly, coldly calculating. But I think what always kind of hits me the hardest as I study this text is how spiritually disaffected he is. Now, of all the people in the Bible, outside certainly of Jesus, David may be the one person who is most spiritually sensitive who really has a tenderness and a heart for the Lord. In fact, God calls him a man after his own heart. So that's not a light designation from the Lord. David's, David's heart was, was open to the Lord. He, he's very, um, very raw in terms of his emotions that he expresses, especially in the Psalms, which we've all read. He, he certainly loves the Lord. He's certainly dependent on the Lord time and time and time again. So as we study his life and his words, I find David very relatable because his emotions are right there. His, what's on his mind, especially as you read through the Psalms, is, is right out in front. So he's somebody that we can feel with. He's somebody we can relate to. And at the same time, he's an example of somebody who is spiritually zealous and passionate and courageous and just is after the Lord, to use that phrase. But not in this passage. In fact, this passage is a 180-degree turn from what we always see with David and, and, and his normal character, his normal love for the Lord, his desire for the Lord is just not here. He's drawn very easily into very unconcealed open sin, and he really is, is very intentionally reckless. He just keeps compounding the problem again and again by, by another sin after another sin after another sin. It's, it's really shocking. When you study the whole of David's life, this, this one chapter just kind of you go, what in the world is going on with this man? This is not who he is. And yet in this moment, it was. So in studying this text, I want to kind of establish a couple baseline truths for you. And I want to encourage you to take some notes. Things will be on the screen this morning. But there are a couple baseline truths that we need to establish just at the outset of this study. The first one is that no one is immune. No one is immune or above the fray when it comes to temptation. No one is immune, no one is above the fray when it comes to temptation. Now the enemy, and we give him no credit this morning, but we have to understand his ways. He has a plan for every spiritual level. If you are not saved this morning, he wants to control your heart and mind, and he wants to keep you far away from God. 
If you're new in the Lord, you're a young believer, he wants to dissuade you from the decision you've made. He wants to dull your faith, and he wants to keep you immature. He wants to keep you as a baby, not growing, not progressing. If you've been a believer for a while, you've been saved for maybe a decade or so, he wants to make you spiritually indifferent. He wants to keep you dull and lifeless and passionless and, and kind of just doing your thing. You made a decision. You've settled in. No big deal. If you've been a believer for decades, like I have, he wants to damage you. He wants to bring you down in a big, spectacular way. And he'll look for any way he can do that to just get you down. Now, this applies to age, too. If you are... Uh, a young person, you're a teenager, he wants to corrupt you now. He's going after your heart now. If you are in college or in your 20s, he wants to make you cynical and critical and, 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 and thinking more than you should and kind of rationalizing your own way of thinking. If you're middle-aged, he wants to make you busy and distracted and living in the now. And if you're older... He wants to make you bitter and resentful. Every stage of spiritual life, every age group, he has a plan to go after you. And no one is immune. And we have to understand that, admit that, acknowledge that, and be humble about it, that we are constantly under attack. Okay, second truth. The accessibility, especially of visual temptations, presents a greater challenge than ever before. The accessibility, especially of visual temptations, presents a greater challenge than ever before. Now, I'm not just talking about pornography, though we will address that very bluntly this morning. But the visual media that we are surrounded by is producing a wide avenue that appeals to our desires, and that threatens to turn us into people that are driven by lust and by coveting and by a need for affirmation. And we're already seeing that in the last 10 years especially. The, the visual expression is overwhelming us. So, truth three, we have to put intentional safeguards in place to offset the onslaught of temptation. We have to put intentional safeguards in place to offset the onslaught of temptation. Now, that word onslaught, I thought about that. It's a very intentional word because that's what it is. Onslaught means a vicious attack. And there is a vicious attack through information and through images, many of which are impure, and which subtly and overtly try to lure us into sin. Now, now David didn't intentionally go onto the roof to be tempted. But we have before us such an easy access. Just a couple clicks, just a couple buttons, and we can be exposed pretty much to anything that the enemy's ever thought of to try to corrupt us. And it's not just TV and the internet. We need to look at circumstances and causes that led David into sin and then look at our own lives and, and form some lines of defense, okay? So we're going to study. We're just going to read five verses this morning, I think. But, but you know the text well, and we'll kind of summarize it. But let's kind of take it a little bit by section. So let's look at 2 Samuel 11, 1 to 5. Thank you for turning in your Bibles. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the sons of Amnon 
and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife, notice that word, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Now, there are a couple practical spiritual principles here in these five verses, and they really speak to our everyday life and some of the safeguards that we need to take. And I want to really encourage you this morning, because this is going to be a bit of a challenging study. I want to encourage each of us, men and women, to humbly analyze how exposed we are in these first two areas. The first one is in verse 1. And the truth here is that being alone or intentionally isolating ourselves makes us vulnerable. It is interesting that the Spirit takes the time to detail that David wasn't out in the battle. Apparently in the spring it was kind of a a ritual like the start of baseball season that that would be the time when they'd go to war. And David sends all his leaders and his uh, soldiers and his close advisors away. He says, you guys go fight, and he stays behind. Now, we're not told why David made this decision. It's not clear from the text. And it's kind of odd because David is very early in his reign. This is within the first year or two at most of him taking over as king. So you would think as the fighter that he is, as the warrior that he is, that he would want to be right out front. He'd want to establish his presence. He'd want to set the tone for his kingdom. Look, I'm not somebody that's going to sit in the chair. I'm going to be out there fighting. So we would think that it would be logical that David would be out there militarily, but he doesn't. He stays back. And we can only speculate, but I really believe that a likely reason is that David was physically and emotionally spent. Because when you look at what had happened prior to this, and all that he had gone through, it's understandable from a human standpoint that he would be exhausted. Let me just run through it real quick. He had been in the spotlight since killing Goliath. We studied that last week. And then he was anointed king, even though Saul was on the throne. And then he had to endure the resentment and constant physical pursuit uh, that Saul had in trying to kill him. David goes and lives in the wilderness for a while without many people around him. He's running. He's hiding in caves. He's being pursued. In the course of that, he loses his best friend, Jonathan, who was like a brother to him. Uh, He died the same day Saul died. That was his dad. And we don't know how much, when David takes over, the nation kind of resents that they don't have Saul anymore because Saul was very popular. Then once David becomes king, he immediately faces a national civil war. And he faces an internal civil war in his own uh, palace between his leaders. And following that civil war, internal war, he faces an actual war with the Philistines who are still ticked off that he killed Goliath. And if that's not enough, he has a strong desire. It's in his heart, I want to build a temple to you, Lord. I want to build a permanent home. And God says, that is a wonderful desire, but you're not going to do it. Your son's going to do it. 
So there's personal disappointment. There's a, there's a kind of a loss of heart that, that he doesn't get to do this. And then after that, he goes back into battle with the Ammonites and the Arameans. So by the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11, David's been through it. And it's not an over-exaggeration to say that at this point he's wiped out, he's weary in every way, he's feeling tremendous pressure in leading Israel and Judah combined, especially because he's still a young man. This is not a 35-year-old guy. This is a guy maybe still in his teens, probably in his very early 20s. So when spring comes around and it's battle time, he says, you guys go on. I'm going to stay here. I, I'm, I'm weary. Now, I know a lot of us may be walking in feeling that way this morning. And it's normal. It's not, it's not unusual for us to feel worn down. But, but here's the thing. Tiredness and stress and a feeling of being owed downtime. How many feel like they're owed some downtime today, right? It's kind of, man, it's Monday again tomorrow? Like, how fast do these weeks go? And you get tired and you get stressed, and all of a sudden you start to let your guard down. And you break from healthy and productive routines, and you start kind of wandering around physically and emotionally. Usually in those times, we don't default to running to the Lord's presence for spiritual refreshing. Usually we default to TV, food, sleep, social media, and the internet. We, we don't, wow, I'm exhausted. I'm so worn out. I can't think another thought. You know what? I need to get in the word. I need to spend some time in prayer. I need to get in the presence of God's people. I need to be encouraged and refreshed and strengthened. Nope, if you're like anybody I need to sit on the couch for a couple hours. I need a blanket because it's cold and it's only October, but it was 80 a couple days ago and it's 80 tomorrow, but it's going to be 50 on Friday and I'm sick of the rain and, and I'm just so, Christmas is two months away, I got to pull out the decorations and I'm, right? Right? You're with me, right? So, gray, dreary, rainy, I'm getting on the couch. I'm getting under a blanket. I'm getting some chips, and I'm going to chill for a while. That's our default. Or I'll spend some time on the Internet, or I'll post to Instagram, or whatever, or I just need a nap. Now, really evaluate this here. When you're stressed and weary, what's your habit? What is your typical response and a scale of 1 to 10? How spiritually beneficial is it? And also ask yourself, when, when I'm struggling, when I'm worn down, is my first desire to run to God's people or to run away from God's people? As I mentioned last week, whenever someone's been missing from church for a while, it usually signals they're either misplaced in their priorities or they're falling back into sin. Now, don't get me wrong. That's not because ending church is the end-all, be-all of life. It's because when you're walking with the Lord, you want to be with his people. 
You want to be around other people that are like-minded. And you don't allow diversions to take priority over being near the Lord. And that also shows up in your personal devotion. Temptation inclines us to spend less time in the Word, less time in prayer, be more distracted, and to serve less. Now, we don't have written confirmation from the Spirit at this point that, that David's weary and he's struggling uh, emotionally and spiritually. But, but all the evidence is there. And it's amazing how quickly a situation can turn bad. David's alone, he's bored, he's tired, he's emotionally drained, so he goes up on the roof to walk around because he can't sleep, and while he's on the roof, he looks around, and through a window, he sees a beautiful woman bathing. Now, as is the case with every step we're going to see this morning, David could have stopped it right here. All it took was a small, simple recognition. Oh, I am in dangerous territory. This is not good. I should not be looking at her. I'm going to turn away. I'm going to get off the roof. I'm going to go down into the palace, and I'm going to get in the presence of the Lord. But that's not, notice it, that's not what David does. He keeps staring at her. He has impure thoughts about her. And then he devises a plan of action. And that takes us to the second spiritual principle. That second look. That second look and continuing to look is when sin enters in and takes root. That second look and continuing to look is when sin enters in and takes root. Certainly in David's case, he is lusting after Bathsheba. But this is not restricted. Lust is not restricted to sexual desire. Lust is coveting. It's, it's a strong craving or appetite for something or someone that is not yours. And this is usually a visual sin. And of course, it's made worse because we live in a very visual generation. So really the two ways that lust is promoted is one, through sexually impure images, and two, through images that promote materialism, comparison, and jealousy. So visually, the devil is saying, I want you to think sexually impure thoughts, so I'm going to put those right in front of you, and then I want you to, to be materialistic, I want you to covet, I want you to compare, I want you to be jealous. Now I have found that it's the, the first kind is much more common in men, though it is not exclusive to men. And I have found that the second kind is much more common to women, though it is certainly not exclusive to women. Now, for men, let me, let me give you some statistics and be very blunt this morning. Everybody okay with that? Even if you're not, I'm going to do it anyway. The, the, the lure of pornography, the lure of explicit images has become far more mainstream and more easy to access through digital means. And in doing that, it has created less stigma and less shame associated with it. Studies now show that most Americans don't believe that full nudity or especially partial nudity qualify as pornography. And younger generations increasingly see it as good for society. 71% of adults and 85% of teens watch pornography through online videos. Almost 50% of young adults say they come across unsolicited pornography at least once a week. 
67% of teen boys seek it out at least monthly, 56% of teen girls and young women. Many teens, most teens, the majority are sexting. 62% have received a sexually explicit image, and 41% have actually sent one. And if we think this is not an issue for the church and it's not a big deal, a recent survey found that 68% of Christian men view pornography regularly, while 11 to 17-year-old boys are the greatest users. Now, those statistics are sobering. But they're only part of the picture. Because the rapid increase in social media is accelerating a glorification of self. And expressions of pride and privilege go out, and studies have shown, and I've quoted them before, that that creates a climate of jealousy and anger and depression. Now, all of this internalization of images is affecting us. And it's not only pushing temptation, but it is increasingly desensitizing our hearts and our minds, and not just about sex. Violence is a huge issue. Another study found that adults who repeatedly view scenes of extreme violence are more tolerant of such concepts, content and more content in allowing children to watch it. Parents were shown violent clips from movies and then asked, at what age should a child be allowed to watch that film? Their initial reaction was at least 17. But the more clips they showed them, that number reduced down until they said 14 would be fine. The rapid rate of desensitization surprised even the scientists, secular scientists, who couldn't believe how quickly the adults said, eh, that's okay. Studies also show that children who observe violence on television, movies, and video games become more aggressive in their behavior because of a decrease in activity in the prefrontal frontal portion of the brain. The prefrontal portion, <laughs> I talk for a living. The prefrontal portion of the brain, say that five times fast, that controls your thinking and your self-control. So the more you watch violence, the more your prefrontal shuts down and says, that's eh, not a big deal. And at the same time, there's greater activity in the amygdala. The amygdala controls your emotions and triggers anger, depression, and aggression. So the more you watch, the more your rational part of your brain kind of takes a nap, and the more the part of your brain that goes, starts to get fired up. Now, where are they learning this? Who is allowing them to watch it? And it is on us as parents. If they see us watching Game of Thrones or The Walking Dead or see us looking at impure images on the Internet, what will they do? If they see us becoming jealous and hostile and angry because of social media or constantly coveting more possessions, spending hour after hour shopping, and what can I buy, and what will Amazon bring me tomorrow, what is their inclination going to be? This is why the Spirit of God says to us in Colossians 3.5, consider the members of your earthly body dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. 
It's why 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. It's why 1 John 2.16 says, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, that's not from the Father, it's of the world. That's why 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, take every thought captive for the obedience of Christ. 2 Samuel 11, look at it. David does none of those things. Bored, lonely, careless, a harmless situation. I can't sleep. I'm going to go walk on the roof and get some fresh air. And notice how the enemy manipulates it to advance his agenda. And again, David could have stopped right there. It would have taken a very small disciplined decision to stop staring, to not take a second look and a third look, and to get his heart right. But he does just the opposite. He purposely does not listen to the Spirit's conviction. And that leads us to the third thought. Ignoring the Spirit's conviction leaves us defenseless. Defenseless. David intentionally acts on his lust. Notice all the people that are involved in verse 3 and verse 4. He gets people. He says, who is that woman? Oh, that's got to be Bathsheba. You know, Uriah's wife. Nope. I need to see her. So not one messenger, not secret, not he writes her a note and makes a paper airplane and shoots it into a window. He sends multiple people, go get her and bring her to me. This is, this is not a hidden request. It involved numerous people to get Bathsheba to David. So my question is, why didn't somebody stop this? Why didn't somebody say, hey, king, Treading on dangerous ground here, uh, you know, maybe you need to meet her with a couple of us present. Now you say, well, that's not, it's not really the place of the servants. They can't question the king. But you can bet after the bedroom door closes, they're out in the hallway talking. Nobody stopped him from doing this. But the bigger issue is that David had not kept anybody close to him. Not his wife. Not his kids, not Nathan, not Joab, nobody. And that should remind us, listen carefully now, that we need spiritually mature friends around us, not sycophants. Surrounding ourselves with the right people is an act of spiritual discipline because our human tendency is to put people around us that will make life easier for us. If you're on a diet and you need to exercise and you want to get in shape, it does not help you to surround yourself with people that want to take you to Giordano's. It will help to surround yourself with people that are going to say at 6.30 in the morning, let's go to the gym together. Which one's going to be more successful? We tend to surround ourselves with people that make life easy. But when we are constantly surrounding ourselves with people who don't challenge us and don't keep us walking on the narrow path, but actually incite us to sin, we will not only not discern the Spirit's conviction, but we won't have anybody around us to correct us when we're making poor decisions. 
I saw an example of this a couple weeks ago at breakfast. I was at Melly Cafe, which is yummy, and, and two little girls were with their grandparents. They were probably, I don't know, four and five years old, something like that. And, and in the middle of the crowded restaurant, it's a busy morning, it was a Friday morning, places packed, and, and, and these two little girls got up in the middle of the meal and started running around the table and kind of yelling and talking real loud and telling jokes and laughing and, and touching other people and all that kind of stuff. Now, they're cute little kids. It's fine. They're just, they're just little kids. So that didn't really bother me. What bothered me is that the grandparents allowed them to just get up in the middle of the meal not finish their meal, interrupt other people's meals. There was not one word of teaching, not one word of correction, not one word, okay, that's enough, come on, sit down, let's finish our breakfast. And as I sat there thinking about that, the Holy Spirit brought me to this passage and reminded me this is the picture of what it looks like when we don't need the Holy Spirit or spiritual friends. We just kind of run around in our spiritual immaturity. We just kind of do our own thing. There's nobody there to kind of stop us and say, hey, hold on, you're not, you're not doing the right thing. And I'm not saying the grandparents should have come down hard on the kids, but they should have said, honey, you're bothering me. Come here. Shh, come here. There was none of that. We should have the spiritual maturity on our own to avoid temptation and put off the sins of the youth. But, but if we aren't walking with the Spirit and we're hanging around with people that don't have biblical conviction, that's going to be way more difficult. Again, David could have stopped it all right here. He could have confessed. He could have repented. He could have made it right. But apparently, in the text, he continues to avoid conviction. And then it all comes down to verse 5. And Bathsheba sends word, and he says, she says, I'm pregnant. Now there's a serious problem. Now the action isn't hidden anymore. And we would expect, based on what we know about David, that he would say, oh, Lord, I have sinned. I, I've got to make this right. You'd think he would go right, right to the throne of grace and say, God, please help me. I've, I've got to make this right. But what he does next is even more shocking. Now, just for clarity, a woman doesn't know she's pregnant until at least five to six weeks after conception. So David had at least a month and a half to repent and to get right with the Lord. Instead, he apparently remains very resistant to the Lord's voice and dulled spiritually because when she sends word, I'm pregnant, he makes things far worse. Look, just as I talk, chapter 6 just kind of skimmed down. First, he calls Uriah, her husband, back to Jerusalem. And he says, hey, bud, it's good to have you back in town. <coughs> you should really, you know, go back to your house and be with your wife. Now, the hope here is that he'll get together with Bathsheba and he'll ultimately conclude that the baby's his. But Uriah throws a little wrench in it. He says, listen, the ark doesn't have a permanent home and the soldier out in the field, how would I be able to go back to my warm bed? And Uriah actually sleeps outside of the palace door on the ground because he says, I'm not worthy to go home. The humility here is stunning. 
And then David says, well, okay, that didn't work. So he says, let's have a party. So he brings Uriah to the palace. And in verse 13, he gets him drunk. Nothing like corrupting the person to make the situation even worse. And again, I think he's hoping, well, if Uriah gets drunk, he won't want to sleep outside. He'll want to go home and sleep it off. And while he's there, he'll be with his wife. And while he's with his wife, then he'll conclude that the baby is his. That doesn't work. So then he sends a letter to his general Joab, and he says, here's the thing. You need to send Uriah the Hittite down to the front line. Find the worst battle that's out there and send him right to the front row. And David actually writes in the letter, I, I don't think I ever noticed this before this week. He actually says in the letter, I want you to make sure, look at it, it's in verse 15. Make sure that you put him there so he will be struck down and die. In other words, Joab, this is a suicide mission that I'm deciding for him. You send him right up to the front because my goal, written in his hand with the king's seal, my goal is that I want him to die. You know, whenever we try to rationalize and disguise our sin, it leads to horrible decisions. And David's living proof. His conscience is dulled. It leads him to deception and degrading and debasing Uriah. And then essentially he commits murder by proxy. At his direction, he makes sure Uriah dies. And this is the last thought. When you begin plotting how to sin, it's time to stop and repent. When you start to plan it out, how can I be covert? How can I hide this? How can I make sure nobody finds out? How can I do this in secret? When that's where we are, it's time to get on our faces. There are so many points in this account where David could have stopped himself. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 6, verse 12, Verse 13, verse 14, verse 16, verse 25, verse 26, verse 27. But each of those 10 times, David keeps moving ahead. He's been so faithful to the Lord up until this moment. He had continually cried out to the Lord for help. But now, instead of hungering and thirsting after righteousness, he's hungering and thirsting after his flesh and after sin. And when that is where our heart is, we're going to have to keep feeding the flesh. And here's what happens. Once we're feeding the flesh... We have to lie to maintain it. And we have to hide things. And we have to keep secret accounts. And we have to manipulate people and situations so we aren't exposed. Or if our heart's just really hardened, like David's apparently is here, we're just blatant about it. We're unashamed about it. Our sin is on public display. Until finally, like Nathan does in chapter 12, and I encourage you to read that later. Until Nathan comes to David and says, you and I are friends, and you are wrong. You are in sin, you don't see it, you don't care about it, and you need to repent. Now what is stunning, what is stunning 
is how humble and righteous and spiritually sensitive Uriah is. We never study Uriah. In 30 years of ministry, I've never preached about Uriah. We don't talk about, oh, Uriah. You remember him? He was a man after God's own heart. No, we talk about David that way. And yet David's completely off the rails at this point. And stop and think about that for a moment. Because when you look at the pantheon of men and women in Scripture that are, that are listed in Hebrews 11, that are, that are the, the top ten list of the great men and women of Scripture, who do you have? Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David, Mary and Joseph, Peter, Paul. I'm missing a couple of people. John. I mean, it's not, a, it's not a huge list. If you really want to isolate the ones that are great, the ones that really stood for the Lord, David's got to be in the top ten, right? And yet, right here, there is a spiritual collapse. And the lesson is that the more we allow sin to influence us, the more spiritually disaffected we will become. First we'll be dulled, then we'll quickly become resistant, then we'll become hard-hearted. We have no idea how long it would have taken David to wake up if Nathan hadn't stepped in. Because when you look at the last verse of this chapter, verse 27, the last line, it says that the thing that David had done, never a word you see associated with David, the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, interestingly, that word means both wicked and causing injury. Anytime we sin, it's not only wicked, it's not only offensive to the Lord, but it will cause injury. And that's exactly what happened. From this moment on, chapter 12, it starts in verse 15. The baby that was born between him and Bathsheba dies. Israel goes to war. His daughter is raped by his son. His other son murders that son and then starts a coup d'etat. And numerous people are corrupted until Absalom dies. David's reputation is damaged. His witness is hurt to the point that 3,000 years later in Wisconsin, we're studying his decision. Don't tell me a small decision doesn't matter. And remember, this was not some spiritual novice. This was the man that the Lord had personally chosen to be the leader of his people. And he was chosen because of his spiritual character and maturity. So what does that tell us? Let's draw it to a close. It tells us the absolute necessity of walking circumspectly. What does that mean? It means as related especially to visual images and lust that we need to walk looking all around. That phrase literally means to discern with your eyes. God help us to have discernment with our eyes. Discernment with our eyes. Jesus says in Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body 
will be full of darkness. So my question, what are you taking in? Is it pure and good, not leading you to covet and to lust? Or if it's not, what steps are you taking so you are not going to be like David on the roof? Now, if this is a message for you, and I think it's for every one of us, and if this is a serious struggle for you, let me give you a couple very intentional ideas about ways that we can confront this. The first one is that there needs to be web accountability. There needs to be web accountability. That means you have content settings. That means uh, if it's really a struggle, you have some kind of program like a Covenant Eyes that, that um, shows people what you're doing. That, that somebody reviews your history. I mean, something where, where there is accountability for you because you're not having restraint. Second thing I would suggest to you is visible web browsing. That laptops, phones, iPads, they be out in the open. That your kids not be up in the room on their laptop with the door closed by themselves because that is not going to go well. I, for adults, that we don't have our little study that we close the doors and we're in there and we're kind of doing our thing and, and the kid comes in, oh, let me shut that down real quick. No, that, it has to be out in the open. Third thing, that there are known passwords. Oh, the teenagers are going to hate me on this one. Every computer, every phone, every iPhone should have a known password. Parents, you pay for the phone. You should have access anytime. And that nervousness that I just created in a bunch of people, not just teenagers, that's a good nervousness. Because if you're nervous about the content of your phone, there's a problem. And we live on our phones, don't we? I was thinking the other day, if you, have you ever had a situation, this is an aside, I'm sorry. If you're holding your phone and it slips out of your hands, what do you do? Oops. You like dive, right? Like, ah! It's going to cost me $210 if that cracks. And we like, oh, we're, you know, playing hacky sack with our phone and diving and no. You know, it hit me the other day. Do I treat this the same way? Do I treat this the same way? How much more infinitely valuable is this than my stupid phone? What do we do? Toss it in the car. Let it go under things, get messed up. Listen, I'm, I'm guilty of this. My binding's broken. How much more do we care right now, I'm serious, about our phone than about this? Because if we just have a panic attack if our phone drops, oh, please, Lord, please, Lord, don't let it be broken. Like the Lord cares. Maybe he wants it broken. I'm not picking on technology, guys. I'm talking about this passage. Passwords need to be known. Now, that's increasingly difficult because of retinal scans and fingertip passwords. And then I'd say, don't use them. Don't use them. Really, is somebody going to come and try to use their fingerprint to get in your phone? If so, well, then, I don't know. You need a flip phone or something. I don't know. Known passwords. Number four, 
there should be real consequences if you fall back. Restrictions. Losing your phone. Parents, we have a right. A phone is not a right. It's a privilege. A computer is not a right. It's a privilege. If it's being misused, take it away. Because there need to be consequences, and there will be consequences to sin. Now you say, well, man, I just came here to be encouraged this morning. This is over the top. This is so aggressive. Like, teenagers now aren't going to talk to me in the hallway. And I would say, when you read 2 Samuel again later today, you will see that this is not too much to do. The cost to David, not just in this moment, not just his reputation, but literally people died and were sexually assaulted because of what he did. The nation was thrown into turmoil. So let me close with this verse. If you write things down, write this down. Proverbs 4.23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Let's ask the Lord to help each of us in this very, very important area.